welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, 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 murder. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. So good to be back. Oh, so good. And you know, this week, I got to tell you, we are kind of stretching the Ivy connection. A little bit. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit here, but this is a really interesting case and a local one. And a local one. It's a reach, though. It okay. is a reach. But we found that Kurt Vonnegut, the writer, is involved in this case, and he went to Cornell. He did. He didn't finish, but he went to Cornell. Right, but it he counts. was accepted. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to Vonnegut's house on the Cape. In Barnstable. In um, West Barnstable, actually, and it is gorgeous. Do you remember? I mean, it was just, you know, we went a couple of weeks ago, big, beautiful, charming oaks, lilacs, there's a barn in the back, and it's all suffused in this beautiful cape light. It's really, that cape light is extraordinary. Yes, it really was something to see, and we'll, we'll post some pictures of it on our Facebook page. But we're not a travel guide, so let's get to some murder. Exactly. Okay? But it is easy to imagine Vonnegut like hunkered over his Smith Corona typewriter, punching out Slaughterhouse Five. That was like, you know, that's his cult novel, and that was published in 1969. At that same time, and not so far away in Provincetown on the Cape, teenage hippie girls were disappearing off the streets. What was happening to them defied even Vonnegut's imagination. I really want to remind our listeners, too, that this is a true crime podcast. And this is a particularly brutal case. So just know there's going to be some grisly details. And Established in 1620, Provincetown, or P-Town, as it's affectionately referred to, was just beyond the reach of the Puritans. P-Town is the furthest point east in Mass on the tip of Cape Cod. While the rest of New England shivered in sparse churches, P-Town was simply too remote to control. It was full of squatters, outlaws, and Portuguese fishermen. Oh, my, Laura. <laughs> my people. It's your people, Laura. Yes. I was thinking of the outlaws, oh. not the Portuguese. <laughs> They're both my people. P-Town was kind of the wild, wild east of Massachusetts. And we were actually there a couple of weeks ago, and it's Pride Month now, so we want to do this case for Pride Month. That's exactly right. What was interesting is Laura and I were talking about why P-Town sort of became, P-Town is known for being kind of, I don't want to say a gay town, but like it does definitely have a large gay population and Key West as well. And what I kind of figured out in doing the research of this, and maybe this is obvious and other people knew about this, is that these communities that were alternative lifestyles were so remote that other people kind of couldn't interfere with them, which is kind of interesting. I it think. is interesting. And I, I can't really talk to Key West because I didn't do deep research on that. Perhaps because of its remoteness, P-Town became a locus for alternative lifestyles. 
at the turn of the 20th century. This freedom of expression evolved into nude beaches, artists, painters, wild parties, sex in the dunes, and kind of anything went in P-Town, my kind of town. <laughs> it sounds you. like a fun time. <laughs> it is a fun yeah. time. And that meant gender bending. In 1940, Tennessee Williams, who was also gay himself, wrote that P-Town was, quote, screaming with creatures, not all of them seagulls. <laughs> and that's 1940. So P-Town became a mecca for artists and gay people. Well, hello, Pride Month. Exactly. And I'm really proud to say that stuffy old Massachusetts was the first state to legalize gay marriage in 2004. So naturally, P-Town has become a wedding destination for gay marriages. Our story focuses on the flower power time in P-Town, because by the time the 60s rolled around, P-Town became a hippie haven. And Laura, as you know, hippies really scare me. Sarah, I know you're afraid of hippies, but you know this is a safe space. If you're a new listener, you may not know this, but Sarah has a fear of hippies, and that's probably a little PTSD from growing up in Cambridge. Terrifying. <laughs> so we're talking the 60s here. Young people rebelling, going to ashrams, taking hallucinogens, weed, communal living, and hitchhiking. It wasn't that unusual for teenagers, even girls, to just take off and then eventually come back. This was a time of free love and new expression. So in May of 1968, when no one heard from Sidney Monson, a pretty, sleepy, green-eyed 17-year-old flower child, they didn't think much of it. Sidney hung around the hippies in P-Town and worked at a local A&P grocery store. Actually, her bike was found locked behind the A&P, but no Sidney. Hey man, have you seen Snid? That was Sidney's nickname. Nah, man, she was talking about starting a new life, which she was. She wanted to travel and become a flight attendant. So when no one heard from Sydney and she didn't show up for her lousy job, she was thought to have just taken off. Sydney's sister, Linda, thought it was odd that Sydney had left her possessions in the P-Town flat she had rented. Her father really wasn't in the picture, Laura, and apparently her mom, like, drank all day smoking Paul Malls, and it took the mom three weeks to report Sydney missing. I know, and that, that does seem crazy today. But, you know, as you, you know, as was before mentioned, this was a different time. Totally. It's like before the time of, like, Amber Alerts and milk cartons. You know, but three weeks, it just seems crazy, man. Like, Jay's gone for three hours and I don't hear from her, and I panic, you know. But, and have you ever noticed with these cases, it's like, it's always a late model van that's involved. <laughs> a late model van was seen leaving this, you know, and so it's anyway. It's still a late model van. It's still, a, it's still a late model van in cases. A late model van was seen leaving. You know what I mean? It, it's always a late model usually van. Usually white. It's usually white. Usually that's white. So be, beware, white late model van. <laughs> then on Labor Day 1968, Susan Perry, 18, disappeared. Susan was a sweet girl who had been in the special ed program of her high school. She had never finished and was, like so many kids at the time, drifting. Unfortunately, she drifted into our subject today, Tony Costa's orbit, and Perry disappeared as well. And again, the Provincetown police were too busy busting local freaks, as they called them, to bother with a couple of missing hippie chicks who were probably sowing their wild oats somewhere else. And we don't want to come down on the police because... This was so common at the time for kids to just take off, hitchhike to L.A. There were no cell phones. So how would you even get in touch with your kids? It's true. And I think 
you know, sort of in the sea of P-Towns, gay bars and cross-dressers and beaded hippies. So I mentioned Tony Costa and Susan Perry had dated Tony Costa. We'll get into Tony Costa a little bit more, but safe to say he was kind of a mild-mannered guy who was hanging around P-Town at the time. And he seemed to attract these sort of young hippie girls. So really in the sea of P-Town's gay bars and cross-dressers and beaded hippies, Tony Costa must have seemed like a safe, kind of mild-mannered guy. He wore granny glasses and turtlenecks. He was kind of handsome in his own ways, kind of appealing. And sure, he had his coterie of young, mostly female hippies that hung on him. Free love and lots of drugs, which Tony plied them with. Although he was chronically unemployed as a handyman. As a hobby, Tony would gather roadkill and perform taxidermy, an interest he had had growing up. So who is Tony Costa, you may ask? Well, Tony Costa was born in Cambridge, our hometown, in 1944 and grew up in Somerville, Massachusetts, which is the town bordering Cambridge. We used to call it Slummerville. And now the irony is Laura and I couldn't even touch a property in, in <laughs> Somerville now. Now Slummerville has, uh, yeah, I think a starter home in Slummerville is a, mil- a million five. We no longer call it that. His father died in World War II and his mother remarried, which greatly disturbed the young Tony because he wanted his mom all to himself. His mother doted on him, so this is definitely not the case where someone is horribly mistreated and turns bad. Tony showed early signs of of disturbing behavior, including harming animals, killing cats, and as we mentioned earlier, an interest in taxidermy. At 16, Costa attacked a 14-year-old neighbor, tied her up, and attempted to rape her. This would introduce him to the court system. It was back in the day, and judges would basically... Like, they basically told you, like, get out of town. And that's what his family did. You know, so by his senior year of high school, the Costas had moved to be near family in Provincetown. And you know what? The cat population bounced back after Tony left Somerville. I think his know? mother might have been from Provincetown. Yeah, they, they definitely, I, the Costas were Portuguese, I believe. And yes. I think they had some family connections in P-Town. I believe well. so. So now in Provincetown High School, 17-year-old Costa would begin dating a 13-year-old named Avis, and they would marry when she was pregnant at 14. The young marriage was doomed, riddled with very grown-up headaches of raising children and pulling in an income. It wasn't long before Tony was out chasing, chasing odd jobs, drugs, other women, and perhaps his first kill. I just want to mention here, too, that We've mentioned this before in our podcast, but the Boston Stranglings had all taken place in the early 60s. And I can't help thinking that that was a really unprecedented, everybody knew about the Boston Stranglings, you know, and I I can't help feeling like serial crimes like that are almost like a virus. Like you have somebody like a young Tony Costa who is hearing about this and his latent desire and his sort of violence, I can't imagine it didn't inspire him as well. No, I mean, I, mean, I think it's hard to talk about the impact of that that case had on Boston at that time. Absolutely. I mean, it was huge. For sure. And, and as it, we often talk about, we don't really have serial killers in New England. Oh, my God, because we're in 100% denial. That's why. <laughs> so know. when we did have one that one time, 
it was a very big deal. I think it may have inspired other people to do the same thing. We've mentioned it before in our in our in our podcast, but it was I think those kind of things infect people like Tony Costa. So I'm just mentioning, I'm just throwing it out there. Costa was always sort of considered an outsider because he came to P-Town when he was 17. He was kind of awkward and he had weird hobbies. And so he was also, wasn't he chronically unemployable and he went totally. from job to job? I mean, he was also really a drifter. He was. And he, at some point he gets introduced to drugs. He has drugs. That definitely connected him to some of his peers, you know, especially to women. And he was really kind of considered attractive. He also considered himself an intellectual. And he preferred to spend time with young hippies because they really looked up to him and found wisdom in his words. He had a very young wife. He had these very young female hippies he was hanging out with. He's a guy who likes to be in control. For sure. And Vonnegut would come to call Costa the Charlie Manson of Provincetown. And really, Laura, like maybe part of his draw, like I said, was drugs. And he would boast about this sort of secret marijuana garden. In fact, it was a spot in the Truro Woods where he stashed drugs, pills, and weapons. He would bury them near this sort of remote cemetery deep in the Truro Woods. And we went there. Yes. You know, it's it's quite a spooky place, actually. What did you think? It's literally a, a cemetery in deep in the woods in Cape Cod. I can't even express how remote this is and never mind going there at night. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Tony and I think Vonnegut compared him to Manson because he possessed a certain charisma yes. that drew people in. And that really was what, you know, and I mean, obviously he was, would have been threatened by people his own age. So he liked younger people and that he could, you know, much like Manson, he could have control over them and he used drugs to control them. And a lot of the same things that Manson used to control women. Absolutely. And part of it was this garden. He would be like, hey, come to my garden in the woods you know, and we'll do drugs. So this was, you know, so he would lure these like spacey young hippies out on a tour. And most of them made made it back from Tony's garden, but some did not. And really the police, like we said, the police didn't take these missing girls seriously because they just figured they had gone off and gone somewhere else or gone to California or hitched a ride somewhere. I mean, this was a very transient time. And I mean, we may also want to speak to how remote Cape Cod is. I mean, Sarah and I were just there and, you know, in season, almost in season. And I mean, it is extremely remote. So I can see how, I mean, you can almost see how young teens, this could be very appealing. There's nothing to do. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's literally nothing to do. It's true. It's true. And here you have this kind of handsome, charismatic guy. It's like, hey, let's go for a ride. You know, you could totally see the appeal. I mean, Cape Cod, the the population triples in the summer. So for most of the year, it's very, very small. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. January 24th, 1969, Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki, friends from Rhode Island College, decided to get away for a weekend of fun in Provincetown. They rented a room on Standish Street from landlady Patricia Morton, an eccentric, a Sunset Boulevard type of woman. My favorite. Yeah. (laughs) Tony Costa was also living there, more or less permanently at the time. 
The landlady noticed that Tony had left them a note asking them for a ride to Truro. Pat and Marianne were seen having drinks at Fossicle. That was a kind of famous dive in P-Town at the time. Then they too vanished. Unlike the girls that had gone missing before, Pat and Marianne were both professional women. Pat was a school teacher, and she was also engaged to a guy named Bob Herbity. And when Bob doesn't hear from Pat, and when she doesn't show up for school, he goes to P-Town looking for her. And he knew something was wrong. You know, he just sensed it. Yes, alarm bells go off with these two right away. And unlike Sydney's parents, Patricia and Marianne's parents expected them home and became alarmed immediately. Patricia's father contacted the Stadies ASAP. That's the state police. We call them Stadies here in Massachusetts. That doesn't everybody? God. No, everyone does Jeez, Louise. Uh, if you've seen The Departed, you might know that term. Uh, you guessed it. The parents were brushed off by authorities, just two more hippies who had joined an ashram somewhere. So Herbity, along with Marianne's boyfriend, basically launched their own investigation. Okay, so I, I looked into this. Not only were the police blowing them off, I'm so sorry to say this, they hired a private investigator who must have been the worst private investigator on the planet because they tell them, oh, Pat and Marianne never came to Provincetown. I mean, talk about... You know, it's okay. I just had to throw that out there because I got pissed. You felt like it was getting I, I just P.I.'s got, about me. Yeah, I got pissed when I heard that. Anyway, Pat had bought a new VW Bug. And I, I can't think of VW Bug without thinking of Ted Bundy, but what have you. So That was like the cool car at the time in the 60s. Oh, fully. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So a Truro local was driving through a shortcut in the woods with his two young daughters. This is so creepy to me. Okay, so this guy, I think his name is Benson. He's driving through, he's like taking like a driving, like a shortcut through the woods to get to his house. And he sees the VW like parked deep in the woods. He thought it was really odd. And he was going to like get out and go check on the bug. This is like a couple of days after they disappear, I believe. But he says he gets this like sense, like the hair on the back of his neck stands up, basically. And he thinks he hears somebody running through the woods. And he's like freaked out enough that he goes home drops his daughters off and goes and gets like a local cop to come and check out the car so they go back by the time they go back there's a sign on the vw windshield saying like engine trouble be right back and the guy benson i think his name is benson he was like that note was not there when i saw the the car abandoned before so so creepy so creepy you know and so with the ve- you know, finding of the vehicle, and it takes the police a little while to get back to the area to see if the VW is there. I'm sorry, I'm not happy with the police in this case. I just am not. Sorry. It takes them a little while to go and check out the area where the VW was seen. And by the time they get back, the VW is gone. It's like, okay, you know, I get it. But, but finally, what the police are doing is taking the disappearance of Pat and Marianne seriously. So, you know, I think that's partly the parents calling, partly Herbity's kind of putting pressure on them saying, you know, what the hell, the finding of the vehicle. So an APB is put out for the young women and their car. So like I said, by the time the police got back to the Truro Woods, the VW was gone. They were curious enough to search nearby and they find a traffic ticket with Pat's name on it and a torn up registration for the car. 
As they continue to search, they uncover an army green duffel bag soaked in blood. They dug deeper and they found legs and arms and a severed head in a bag. These remains were so badly decomposed that she went unidentified and also, given the level of decomposition, could not be Pat or Marianne. But who was this Jane Doe? And where were Pat and Marianne? The police then really start taking this seriously. Uh, and once they do, they're fantastic. Well, okay. yeah. I mean, you know, I there's think, a, there's a, the guy Flynn is a superstar. Right. It's, I you think know. once they have some evidence, I think that they there were just so many missing people at the time that until they had some Stop evidence. Stop apologizing for the police. Okay? <laughs> they did a shitty job in the beginning of this case, Laura. Okay. I mean, it's okay. You know, they, and they did an excellent job now. So. So the police confirmed that the girls had arrived at the room in, in Provincetown and had paid the owner, Patricia Morton. Tony Costa had also rented a room there, and both women were also seen with him. Tony became a person of interest. His stuff was still there, but he had left town. Police searched his room and found rope with a red substance on it, and they also find a hairdryer and a sweater that Bob Herbity identified as belonging to the girls. So Tony really becomes the number one suspect at this point. There is a lot of doubt in P-Town. There were a lot of Tony supporters, let me tell you. Locals just couldn't believe that Tony, the nice guy they knew, could be capable of that level of brutality. Sure, like he's a little weird, but wasn't everybody in P-Town? But it doesn't seem like he covered it up very well, Sarah. I mean, you know, he just kind of like left the evidence everywhere, so it it surprised me that he had so much support because, it, you know, he really didn't seem to do much to hide the evidence. It's true, but I think when you're talking about people and people think that they trust somebody, true. they, they kind of, there's this suspended disbelief that this guy that you know who came and fixed your heater one winter for free, you know, could possibly have done this to multiple people. But in any case, so... So oddly, Sarah, the VW was traced to Beacon Street in Boston and then Burlington, Vermont. And when Costa hears he's a suspect, he goes back to P-Town to exonerate himself and help with the investigation. Really? Talk about a narcissistic personality. Total. No, uh, well, this is what's baffling. He's in Burlington, Vermont. Burlington, Vermont is like a stone's throw away from Canada. And at that point, the boundary between the, the border between U.S. and Canada is so porous. He could have just kept going and disappeared. But no, you know, his attitude is like, I'm just a nice guy fella trying to help out kind of thing. You know, but I think you're right about the narcissism. I think it was sort of like, you just wonder why he just didn't take off and, and pull a, a Bradley Bishop. But we've seen know? this before, you know, when these personalities think they're smarter than the police. And we just, let me just explain it. You know, let me just explain myself. That's how they feel. Yeah. And we've seen it with like Dirk Grindadier. You see it with something like uh, Scott Peterson, where they just think they can, they can just clear it up if they explain themselves. You know, and, and also, the, so the search in the woods, obviously they had found these remains horribly dismembered, horribly decomposed and they don't have any hope of finding pat and marianne alive at this point but the search definitely continued in in the woods they did not find them immediately though i had read that it was such dense woods that the cops were getting lost just looking for the other yes. other graves 
So finally, in a sandy depression in the woods, the police unearthed the co-mingled remains of Pat and Marianne. The coroner was called out once again, out to the Toro Woods, and they had been mutilated. There were no genitals left. Where the genitals were, he had stuffed their hearts. They had been bitten, and he had had sex with the corpses. I yeah, mean, this I is mean, just, it's, it's complete, the horror that, you know, it's Tony Costa defies imagination. I mean, it really does. And and again, you know, as we've mentioned, we were in those woods, and there, when you're there, it's it's really unimaginable. It's very creepy. I I, I you feel this kind of oof. You yeah, know, it, it's it's quite creepy and beyond remote. So you can really see how somebody could kind of do anything in those woods, and nobody would ever know. Yeah. So meanwhile, the media had gotten wind, and media went wild you yeah know? so enter kurt vonnegut and he wasn't the only writer who escaped new york for the cape norman mailer also was intrigued with the grisly de- details that were being exhumed in the troll woods as people so often do not kurt vonnegut and norman mailer didn't do this but sort of popular culture did this and you know they, they but it turned humor to deal with the true horror of, of Tony Costa's deeds. There were a few like tasteless jokes about Tony and they called him Tony Chop Chop. And, you know, there were jokes like Tony digs girls and hey, I heard Tony Costa would pay an arm and a leg for a car, you know, that kind that kind of thing. So, Side note, Sarah, didn't we have uh, Norman Mailer's nephew on the show? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Peter Olson. Peter Olson. Yeah. Yes, we did for his book, The Vig, Confessions of an Ivy League Bookie. Exactly. You should check that episode out, listeners. So Vonnegut had a very personal brush with Tony, and this may have been, you know, that definitely strengthened the connection. Tony had invited his 19-year-old daughter, Edith, out to see his garden. So it's only happenstance that prevented her from going with him. So Vonnegut must have felt a very real possibility that his daughter could have been among the missing and murdered. It's so frightening to think about. And Vonnegut actually wrote an article about this case, which was part of his short stories, and we actually have the original article. We do. It's in a Life magazine, and it's... July 25th, 1969, with Neil Armstrong on the cover. So the district attorney in this case was a guy named Edmund Dennis, and he was the one who sort of dealt with the media. There were also a couple of state police officers, one of whom was named Bernie Flynn. And Bernie Flynn was sort of this handsome OG type of cop, you know, and he was sort of self-described as not a nice guy. And he classically said, like, if you want to be a nice guy, don't be in this business. And so they were the ones when Tony got back to town, they were heavily questioning Tony, you know, what happened to Patricia and Marianne. And Flynn later would say that as horrible as recovering the remains in the woods was, it was when, Laura, the bodies were reassembled on an autopsy table that the true horror of what had happened to them became apparent. It's unimaginable, Sarah. And Tony firmly denied any knowledge of what happened to the women. He said he met them but didn't harm them. And Tony told a string of wild tales and several versions of what had happened with Pat and Marianne. That's the thing about the truth, Sarah. 
doesn't vary. No, it doesn't. And the more he talks to the police, the more that he digs himself in, so to speak, his story continued to change. He said he bought the car from the women who needed the money for an abortion. It was just lies on top of lies. And then, wow, Tony's mother gets a <laughs> telegram from the girls. Good news. The girls are in New York. And they decided to send a telegram to Tony's mother, of all people, not their own families. <laughs> and the police know this is BS. You know, they keep him talking. And finally, when the evidence directly connected Tony to the grisly murders, he couldn't deny that he wasn't there. So he makes up this bizarre story, Laura, about a guy named Carl, and that Carl is the actual perpetrator. Tony says, hey, I was there. And that he claims that, I believe it was Mary Ann, that Carl has brutalized her. She's almost dead. She's gurgling. And that Tony kind of puts her out of her misery. So what a guy. So basically, Tony has murdered the girls and dismembered them and had sex with them after death. Yeah. And by the way, they found a fourth body that was also buried near Pat and Mary Ann. The level of decomposition indicated that this fourth body had been there longer than Pat and Marianne. So the police were starting to put the puzzle together of the missing girls and the body parts. And so the hand from the first body was rehydrated and matched with Susan Perry. And the fourth body was identified as Sidney Monson. Mm. Well, at least the family finally got at least some closure. As more details of the finds came out, a media circus grew. All of a sudden, the search for the missing girl's kaleidoscope. See, and this is where it's like now there's all this attention focused on missing girls. Missing girls, missing girls, missing girls. So Dennis, the the district attorney, Edmund Dennis, makes a statement about how there are 20,000 missing girls right now in the United States. Were all of them buried in Tony's garden? And the, the, the media just went bananas, you know, and all of a sudden Truro and P-Town became a beehive of activity. People would show up drunk with their kids, like shovels in hand, digging for remains. I mean, it just got weird. It's, it's really weird. People's, you know, appetite for this gruesome. I mean, I say this as we do a true crime podcast, but yep. we don't really focus on the gruesome. I don't feel people would actually go there and dig. It's bizarre to me. So Costa went on trial in 1970 for the murders of Marianne Wysocki and Patricia Walsh. He was represented by Maurice Goldman, and Goldman didn't have a whole lot to work with here. Yeah, I mean, I would it say was, not. You know, and so they give Tony a battery of tests for insanity. They also bring up his drug use, which was extremely heavy, and they basically argue for diminished capacity due to his drug use. And so I looked into this mm -hmm. and I actually, I read about how when violent offenders are also on drugs, basically you can have drug users who are nonviolent, of course. You can also have violent people who are not on drugs or alcohol or diminished in some ways, but a violent brain that's on drugs, I'll quote what I read, which is violent brains may be characterized by a more powerful engine driving them to act impulsively. While the addicted brain is typified by weaker brakes on such drives, in violent offenders who are also addicted to drugs, 
the combination of a more powerful engine, more capacity for violence, and weaker brakes may leave them with both greater desire to seek pleasure, whether that's drugs, violence, or other activities, and a reduced ability to just say no. So I'm not sure how much we went into it, but his drug use was very severe. Pills, uh, street drugs, everything. But I uh, and and kind of the word in P Town too was like, hey, if Tony had never gotten into drugs, this would have never happened. That, yeah, that I don't was... believe that. I mean, I think he had a very you know showed signs almost of the McDonald triad, you know, which is you know violence towards animals, bedwetting, and arson, you know, which is a predisposition to violence or you know sociopathy and, and, and at what, a young age. And what's curious is his his young wife Avis who he had cheated on, who he had left, who he had actually done some jail time because he hadn't given her any money towards right, the kids. Right, he wasn't financially supporting. But but she was still supportive of Tony as well, right. which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean I don't think drugs make somebody, you know, a serial killer and and you know cut people's bodies up. I just think that, that that he happened to be on drugs. But I think his violent tendencies, you know, we saw very young with the harming of animals and some of his other behavior. I agree, but I kind of feel like, to me, it's like smoldering embers and the drugs are like a gasoline that you pour on that right. and then it just becomes conflagration. Right. I mean, he was probably having violent fantasies young. I mean, he attacked a neighbor young, you know, these things were all happening probably prior to any introduction of drugs. And his defense attorney, Maurice Goldman, really did not have a whole lot to work with. And he was especially stunned when Tony wanted to get up and make a statement. And this is an interesting moment in the trial because Maurice Goldman had spent the whole trial saying, gosh, you know, he's crazy. He's on drugs. Right. He's insane. Tony, he's incapable. He's right. incapable. He's not competent. Tony Costa gets on the stand and reads this very sort of well thought out, articulate statement. This is a disaster. He lectures on the evil of drugs, and by doing so, he demonstrates how mentally capable he actually is. He's extremely lucid. He comes across as... And the jury quickly found him guilty on both counts and sentenced him to two life sentences at Walpole Prison. So I will talk about Walpole in a second, but what I really find what needs to be mentioned is he was only convicted of Pat and Marianne's murders. It's basically known that he murdered Susan Perry and that he murdered Sidney Monson. And he was suspected in four other disappearances right. of, of young women. This is a horrible double murder that he's convicted of. It's not his only. Right. Murder. But that's not uncommon for the, the DA to try on two cases. This is already in prison for life. They're not going to try him on the rest of the cases. Yeah, exactly. I'll talk about Walpole now. Okay, I haven't had the pleasure of visiting <laughs> Walpole Prison. Oh, uh, I, and you have. I have several times. And actually, Walpole, on a, on a future case that we're going to do about Dr. Richard Sharp, I will tell our listeners a little bit about my adventures in, in Walpole. It was, it's a great case, and it's the Walpole Prison figures very strongly, especially in the piece of the investigation that I worked on. So that's for a future but what so, does Tony do at Walpole? Tony writes a book. He, he writes a book called Resurrection. And he also, when he's at Walpole, he finds his soulmate in the form of another inmate. And they are together until this person is found dead. 
and it's ruled a quote-unquote suicide, but it was extremely suspicious. And then Tony eventually kills himself in Walpole. He does in 1974, I believe. His mother had died subsequently, and he basically said, I know I killed my mother with all of this. I know that killed her. And his mother was always supportive of him. And, and like we said, this is not a case of somebody being horribly mistreated. This is somebody who was just wrong, essentially. Right. had some bad wiring because we didn't see any instances in, of any abuse in his childhood. I have to mention, too, part of where we got our research from was obviously the Life magazine, but also I just wanted to mention that there's a book called In His Garden, The Anatomy of a Murder, and it's by Leo Damore. He has since passed away, but it's about a 600-page tome all about Tony Costa, and uh, it's actually out of print. But we were lucky enough to actually get a copy of it. And Laura and I... Well, Leo Damore is a whole nother story. Oh, but... that's, a, that's another case, which we will... He's know. also the writer of the book, the premier book on Chappaquiddick. Oh, that's right. And yep. Leo Damore died uh, when, uh, after his death. His manuscript on JFK and his mistress has never been seen since. So Laura and I thought we were being so original by connecting (laughs) Kurt Vonnegut to Tony Costa. But it turns out that Robert Downey Jr. is also developing a film about just this called Helltown. That's uh, what P-Town has traditionally been called as Helltown. So we're on trend, Laura. We're We're just, yeah, we're a little late to the game on this one. Maybe we could have got to Robert Downey Jr. a few years ago. Or maybe it just means we're missing the bus on the zeitgeist. I don't know. (laughs) We'll, uh, We'll catch up next time. Murder, murder.